Chapter Four, Part One of Revolted Woman by Charles George Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some old time termagants and ill made matches of celebrated men. The strong minded woman, as the phrase goes, we have always with us nowadays and as this species of strength of mind seems really to be a violent and uncertain temper there can be little doubt but that the strong-minded woman has always been more frequent than welcome certainly shrewishness and termagancy have been too evident throughout the ages from the days of xantippe to the present time that much we know from the lives or shall we say under the painful circumstances the existences of public men who have been cursed with scolding wives but what asmodeus shall unveil the private conjugal tyrannies the hectorings and the curtain lectures that make miserable the undistinguished lives of men of no importance for good or evil in the state how many women in fine wear the breeches through the strength of mind which may be justly defined as readiness of that impassioned invective which in its turn may be reduced like a vulgar fraction to its lowest common denominator of nagging not a pretty word is it and it is a practice even less pretty than that cross-grained definition would warrant we cannot however lift the veil that hides the domestic infelicities of the lieges but must be content to recount the troubles and oppressions that have befallen historic caudles, who bulk a great deal larger in the history of England than they did in their own homes to their wives. Sir Edward Coke, the great law officer of James I's reign, the revered Coke upon Littleton of the law student, was little enough of an authority in his own household, after he married his second wife herself a widow the relict in fact of sir william newport hatton he married her but a few months after his wife's death privately and in haste probably urged to such an indecent speed by the necessity of forestalling the lord keeper bacon in the lady's affections but he had not been wise in his haste for affection for him at least she had none she had probably buried all her kindly feelings in the grave with sir william hatton for she would never be known as lady coke but always as lady hatton and in truth she led that distinguished and bitter lawyer the life of a dog one wonders indeed why she married him at all who was old enough to be her father it was not ambition for she was by birth a cecil and daughter of the second lord burley nor the want of money nor the need of a protector for she was very well able to take care of herself as sir edward presently discovered and she was sufficiently wealthy they quarrelled incessantly about property about the marriage of their daughter about anything and everything sir edward coke was only suffered to enter her house in london by the back door and she plundered his residence in the country she sent her daughter away to oatlands to prevent a marriage with sir john villiers which sir edward was pressing forward 
and he with his son and ten or eleven servants weaponed in violent manner repaired thither broke open the door and took her away lady hatton intrigued at court against the distracted coke who was already in disfavour at st james's and procured an interference by the star chamber which condemned his most notorious riot but coke eventually gained the upper hand in this matter at least and the girl was married to the man of his choice this did not end the enmity for years they contended together until death parted them but she survived him by ten years legal subtlety and ability had no terrors for lady hatton and martial prowess daunted the wife of monk as little for in very truth lady albemarle the famous nan clarges wife of that general monk who was created first duke of albemarle was so awe-inspiring a termagant that her husband declared he would rather fight a battle than dispute with her and that the roar of a whole park of artillery was not so terrible to him as her tongue loosened in floods of abuse there is no doubt that he regretted his union with the washerwoman's daughter whom he had married who was neither beautiful nor witty nan clarges had all the ancestry and upbringing that made for shrewishness her mother was one of the five women barbers who gained notoriety by their vulgarity even in that age and her father was a blacksmith and farrier one john clarges who lived at the corner of drury lane and the strand over his forge her mother became afterwards a laundress and she herself dabbled in the soapsuds before and after her marriage to thomas ratford whose father was also a farrier this marriage took place in sixteen thirty two and she and her husband occupied a shop in the new exchange in the strand where they sold gloves powder and cosmetics her parents died in sixteen forty eight and she and her husband separated in the following year three years later she married colonel monk whose laundress she had been although the tongue of scandal was not idle when one remarried who was not a widow the farrier never reappeared to claim his wife and when the restoration was accomplished partly it is said owing to her royalist sympathies and general monk became duke of albemarle none were found to question her title of duchess but she became the laughing-stock of the court and gave general disgust to pepys who called her in good faith a plain homely dowdy and ironically that paragon of virtue and beauty on one occasion he found the duke of albemarle at dinner with sorry company some of his officers of the army dirty dishes and a nasty wife at table and bad meat but she was mildness itself compared with that she-devil bess of hardwick who was wedded and a widow before her sixteenth year and saw four husbands into the grave she was the daughter of a rich derbyshire gentleman who died and left her his sole heiress at an early age she fascinated and married a neighbour the young and invalid mr barley whose property ranged with her own he lived but a short while 
and left her a charming widow with a great access of wealth her second venture was sir william cavendish a suffolk gentleman of good family and great property whom she married and constrained to sell his suffolk lands and settle with her in derbyshire she ruled him thoroughly and he seems to have been little better than her chief director of works in the building operations that were a passion with this singular woman through the whole of her long life her home was at hardwick hall but she now began to build a very much more magnificent house at chatsworth she had not proceeded very far with this work before sir william cavendish probably wearied out with being ruled in all things followed her first husband to the grave lady cavendish mourned him for a decent period keeping her eye open the while for another eligible whom she presently found in the person of the widower sir william st low a captain in queen elizabeth's guard and a gentleman of considerable property in the neighbourhood of bath but sir william had a family and she could not think of wedding him until he had made a settlement upon her of all his lands he did so readily this bluff soldier for he was absurdly fond of her as his letters show he was however detained much in the service of the queen in london and at windsor and died very soon lady st lo was now become extremely wealthy with her own fortune and the added wealth of three husbands deceased but she was far from content she was building incessantly both terrestrial habitations and airy castles and hungered both for more wealth and greater social distinction for some while she cast about for another partner and at length found a suitable quarry in george talbot earl of shrewsbury another widower with a grown-up family him she married and from that time he knew but little peace true the first year or so of their union seems to have been comparatively mild but the storms that ensued were beyond anything the earl was for nineteen years the custodian of mary queen of scots and she seems to have aroused the jealousy of the countess for the unfortunate talbot was surrounded with his wife's spies and the espions whom the english queen's suspicious nature also set around him made his life a misery poor talbot two queens and a wife and such a wife to serve guard and pacify how wretched he must have been in that gorgeous palace of chattysworth as the old-time spelling had it his wife embittered his own sons against him while her family of cavendishes hated him cordially and as he had foolishly made over his property to her upon his marriage he lived practically upon sufferance queen elizabeth in whose service he continually expressed the greatest loyalty took the part of his wife and ordered him to be content with an allowance of five hundred pounds per annum which the countess vouchsafed him to my perpetual infamy and great dishonour as he wrote thus to be ruled and overran by my wife so bad and wicked a woman but your majesty shall see that i will observe your commandments 
though no curse or plague on earth could be more grievous to me poor fellow his faults were few probably the greatest of them being a weak amiability which led him to be reconciled time and again to his wife who used every reconciliation as a means to the end of entreating him even more shamefully than before he died at length wearied out with the lawsuits the ingratitude of his own children and the bitter animosity of his wife she survived him for many years and died aged eighty-eight in the winter of sixteen o seven during a hard frost which put a stop to the building works which she was carrying on here and there over all her possessions she was passionately fond of bricks and mortar or else was mindful of a prophecy that she should live so long as she continued building that prophecy was fulfilled by the frost which rendered her workmen idle anne clifford countess of dorset pembroke and montgomery was another insatiate builder and a woman of very great independence of character not a vindictive fiend like old bess of hardwick but all the same a woman who would have her way she married the earl of dorset as weak and vicious a man as she was a strong and virtuous woman with whom she lived most unhappily when he fortunately died she declared that she would not wed a man who was either a curser a courtier or a swearer or who had children and it so happened that in marrying philip herbert earl of pembroke and montgomery she allied herself to a widower with a family who was both a courtier and a proficient in vile language and fancy swearing he however soon joined the majority and his widow took no more chances in the lottery of marriage she busied herself in rebuilding her castles which had been destroyed during the civil war six of them throughout cumberland and westmoreland and spent the remainder of her long life in journeying from one to another carrying with her the huge volumes in which she had collected the records of the clifford family and the memoirs of her own life hers was the borough of appleby for which sir john williamson secretary of state proposed a candidate but the countess who had despised cromwell and loathed the viciousness of charles the second's entourage replied in a characteristic note i have been bullied by an usurper i have been neglected by a court but i won't be dictated to by a subject your man shan't stand anne dorset pembroke and montgomery she was a wonderful woman she spoke five languages fluently and was accomplished in many ways and according to bishop rainbow of carlisle who preached her funeral sermon she had a clear soul shining through a vivid body her body was durable and healthful he continues her soul sprightful and of great understanding and judgment faithful memory and ready wit she was a perfect mistress of forecast and aftercast and according to dr don knew well how to converse of all things from predestination to slea silk 
she was no less great as a builder than nimrod was mighty as a hunter and bess of hardwick was scarce her equal in the piling up of bricks and mortar she spent over forty thousand pounds in this way and the good bishop who preached her funeral sermon took as an apt text every wise woman buildeth her house she rebuilt the castles of brougham appleby skipton barden tower pendragon and bro she restored the churches of bongate skipton and appleby and the chapels of ninekirks brougham bongate and mallerstang she erected a monument to spencer in westminster abbey another on the old penrith road to her mother the dowager countess of cumberland and another still to her tutor samuel daniel and she founded and restored almshouses besides but the first duchess of marlborough was a prize termagant although in early life a woman of winning ways sarah duchess of marlborough was the ruler of that great commander and military genius john churchill first duke of marlborough and victor of such hard-fought fields as blenheim ramillies and malplaquet the rise of the churchills reads like a romance so constantly was their progress maintained for so many years he was the son of an impoverished country gentleman who had lost his all in a chivalric attachment to charles i and gained little consideration for it when the restoration brought charles the second to dover and the king enjoyed his own again all the recompense the ruined cavalier received was the reception of his son afterwards to become the most famous soldier and general of his time as a page in the service of the king's brother the duke of york macaulay's whiggish prejudices forbade him writing anything to the credit of the duke of marlborough and so he seized upon the gossip of the time which has come down to us and has stated as a fact that john churchill owed this initiatory post to the interest of his sister arabella who had become an acknowledged mistress of the duke of york the young lady was not beautiful he says in his history of england but the taste of james was not nice and she became his avowed mistress she was the daughter of a poor cavalier knight who haunted whitehall and made himself ridiculous by publishing a dull and affected folio long forgotten in praise of monarchs and monarchy the necessity of the churchills was pressing their loyalty was ardent and their only feeling on arabella's seduction seems to have been joyful surprise that so plain a girl should have obtained such height of preferment but churchill's good looks and gallant bearing stood him in better stead than this in that profligate court he captivated the fancy of his distant cousin barbara palmer the most beautiful of the king's mistresses already created duchess of cleveland as the price of her dishonour buckingham afforded the king ocular proof of this attachment and we are told that churchill was sent into practical banishment but to an ostensible command in tangier or into the low countries 
the duchess of cleveland made her kinsman a present of five thousand pounds with which he promptly purchased an annuity of five hundred pounds and so laid a foundation to his fortunes england was for a time in close alliance with france and it was then and there that the young officer he held a commission in the guards learned scientific warfare under those past masters in the art of war conde and turenne he remained for five years in flanders and during that time distinguished himself at numerous places more especially at the siege of maastricht where the handsome englishman as turenne called him was thanked for his services by louis the fourteenth returning to england he was married privately to sarah jennings whose family like his own had suffered great misfortunes in the cause of the stuarts she had been introduced to court and had obtained a position there as maid of honour to james's second wife the young and beautiful mary of modena by the interest of her elder sister the belle jennings of gramont who had held a similar post during the lifetime of the first duchess of york she and her sister were the only virtuous women in all that court and neither the cajoleries of the king nor his brother availed anything to induce them to join the ranks of the nell gwynnes the barbara palmers or the louise de Kauai, whose shame helped to swell the peerage sarah jennings was not the equal of her sister in beauty of whom gramont says she had a complexion of dazzling fairness luxuriant hair of a light golden colour an animated countenance and the most beautiful mouth in the world nature had adorned her with every charm to which the graces had added the finishing touches she gave you the idea of aurora or of the goddess of spring as the poets depict those divinities she did not quite come up to this standard but if the judgment of her contemporaries and the truth of the painter's brush may be accepted on her behalf she would have been the foremost beauty at whitehall or st james's had not her sister already held that distinction kneller's portrait of her shows a face of considerable beauty poised charmingly upon a graceful neck and fringed with flowing curls and with luxuriant hair as fine one would dare contend as that of her sister frances the theme of that french gossip she has in all her portraits that piquant beauty which shines out of glancing eyes full and luscious eyes which the churchills have inherited to the present day that comes of a departure from regularity of feature which is exhibited most charmingly in the nose tip-tilted ever so little but destructive of all coldness and frigid hauteur of appearance eyes eloquent nose rebellious chin a little cleft and firm lips somewhat rich and ripe and with a sensuousness that must have been three parts the convention that obtained among the courtly painters of the time do you wonder looking at her counterfeit presentment that she should have been the ultimate ruler of that great commanding officer the scourge of ministers of state or that the queen anne the most paltry puppet of a sovereign which modern times afford our astonished gaze 
should have been for years entirely under her thumb she was a woman of imperious and ungovernable temper shrewd withal if not a little shrewish accomplished and clever enough to have proved for a time a match for the intriguers who beset the throne during the last years of the seventeenth century and the first of the eighteenth during a great part of queen anne's reign the country it has been truly said was ruled by a triumvirate the duchess of marlborough ruled her mellifluous mrs morley the queen the duke had in reality fulfilled the kingly function of going forth to battle and defeating the enemies of the nation while godolphin ruled the parliament in his absence but the greatest of these in council was the duchess the queen was a quantité négligeable and marlborough himself very accurately if contemptuously described her in the courts of europe as a very good sort of a woman anne reigned but did not govern but mrs freeman had ambition enough and very nearly the capacity to govern everybody but herself and there the want of self-control and her woman's reckless tongue betrayed her there is no doubt that the duchess was extremely fond of and ambitious for her husband and that the love was mutual may readily be gathered from the duke's letters to his wife years after their marriage he writes after ramillies i did not tell my dearest soul in my last my design of engaging the enemy if possible to a battle fearing the concern she has for me might make her uneasy if i could begin life over again i would devote every hour of it to you but as god has been pleased to bless me i do not doubt but he will reward me with some years to end my days with you this was twenty-eight years after their marriage and is eloquent of churchill's rare constancy and faithful heart but though he appears from his letters so uxorious a husband he exercised a judicious restraint upon his feelings on occasion and his naturally equable calm and reserved temper stood him in good stead when the duchess was more than usually unreasonable and furious thus there is a story told of her that once in order to vex him who admired her beautiful hair so greatly she cut off those shining tresses which kneller has painted so well and laid them on the duke's dressing-table but however much he was pained by this act of singular spite he showed nothing of it by his manner he scarcely seemed to notice them and when she came again to look for them they were gone and no word said she had failed that time and did not dare to mention the circumstance but after the duke's death in collecting his papers she found her hair which she had cut off years before treasured up in a secret place among his most cherished possessions she was used to tell the tale herself and when she came to this part she invariably broke down and fell a-crying for shame and grief the beauty of the duchess of marlborough says horace walpole had always been of the scornful and imperious kind and her features and air announced nothing that her temper did not confirm both together her beauty and temper 
enslaved her heroic lord she was pugnacious beyond all bounds and commanded fear and respect even when she was not loved by her undoubted abilities she had a son and four daughters the son died in early youth her daughters all became peeresses and they and their daughters were harried by her continually she affected to be fond of her granddaughter the duchess of manchester daughter of the duchess of montague her youngest child she said to her one day duchess of manchester you are a good creature and i love you mightily but you have a mother and she has a mother replied the duchess of manchester and she had indeed in a superlative degree the great sarah was in fact never happy unless she had some quarrel on hand she was offended by her granddaughter lady anne egerton's conduct in arranging a marriage between her brother and a daughter of lord trevor this alliance certainly could not fail to be galling to the widowed duchess who now that her husband was dead idolized his memory and pursued with an unquenchable hatred all those who had opposed him in former years for lord trevor had been one of the great duke's bitterest enemies and now for a grandson of marlborough to marry a daughter of one who had reviled him and had sat in the seat of the scorner it was too much she had a portrait of her granddaughter brought her and to show her hatred painted the face black and wrote an inscription for it she is much blacker within her temper had grown more furious with her advancing years soured as she had been by the ultimate revolt of anne against her imperious and insulting behaviour toward her majesty in public she had given the queen her gloves and fan to hold during state ceremonies and affected not to hear when spoken to certainly no royal favourite had ever before held power by the uncompromising frankness with which the duchess of marlborough treated the queen and whatever else may be laid to her charge neither flattery nor a cringing attitude fulsome adulation nor obsequious humility can be attributed to her all those qualities of the sycophant are to be found in the character of abigail hill the poor relation for whom the duchess had found a small position in the royal nursery and who managed by these meannesses to alienate the affections of the weak and sullen queen courts were different then and politics entered largely even into the doings and attention of the royal domestics abigail hill who had been engaged as a rocker of royal or princely cradles exercised her influence tutored as it was by mr secretary harley upon the queen who dismissed the duchess of marlborough from her office as mistress of the robes and with the dismissal of the duchess fell the ministry of marlborough and godolphin marlborough who was as able a diplomat as he was a soldier who knew the secrets of every european court was unconscious of the plottings and backstairs influences which were undermining his own power the duchess too knew nothing until their political ruin was accomplished and then all was in vain 
although the conqueror of so many hard-fought fields and the crafty overreacher of astute statesmen might plead for the reinstatement of his wife with all his eloquence and even go on his knees to implore the queen's favour the steadfast obstinacy of a stupid woman oppressed for years and too weak for revolt until now was proof against all the matchless services and traditions of the man and the position which the great sarah's arrogance and folly had lost them the marlboroughs never regained the viceroy over the queen as she had been termed was no longer heard even when she went in person to kensington palace the queen would no longer listen to her dear mrs morley and dearest mrs freeman were estranged forever and though six years later the queen died and that commonplace dynasty the house of hanover came to the throne in the person of george i neither the duke nor the duchess of marlborough ever again held the power which had once been theirs marlborough died in seventeen twenty his wife survived him for over twenty-four years dying at the advanced age of eighty-four age did not wither her resolution nor custom stale her pugnacity she still panted like the war-horse in job for the fray she sniffed contention from afar and kept death himself waiting an unconscionable time a year before her death when very ill and like to shuffle off this mortal coil her physicians in consultation over her bed upon which she lay in apparent unconsciousness decided that she must either be blistered or she must die must was no word to utter in her presence compulsion was not to be thought of or applied to that proud spirit i won't be blistered and i won't die she exclaimed with her old fire and vehemence and she did neither at that time she died possessed of immense wealth at marlborough house on october eighteenth seventeen forty four she left an income of thirty thousand pounds a year to her grandson charles duke of marlborough and the same to his brother while her hatreds were shown in the legacies she bequeathed to pitt afterwards earl of chatham and to the earl of chesterfield in recognition of their opposition to one of her pet aversions sir robert walpole the mother of that doughty champion of the church in the thirteenth century robert de insula bishop of durham from twelve seventy four to twelve eighty three must have been the very ideal of a shrew the bishop rose to his high station from quite a menial office in the monastery of durham and his origin was so lowly that he had no family name but is supposed to have assumed one from his birthplace of holy island off the durham coast the monkish chronicler of waverley calls him Hollyland, and the monk of lanercost dubs him robertus de coquina from which it would seem that even these old historians had their prejudices however that may be the bishop was either not ashamed of his origin or else had all the vanity of a self-made man for he was not slow to allude to the original meanness of his birth on occasion as the following anecdote may show 
the bishop was once at norham and the lord of screamerston sent him a present of some country ale the bishop had long been unused to such humble beverage yet from respect to the donor and also to the good report of the liquor he tasted a cup of it et non sustinens see said he the force of custom you all know my origin and that neither from my parents nor my country can i derive any taste for wine and yet now my country liquor is rendered utterly distasteful to me to his mother the bishop gave a train of male and female servants and an honourable establishment as befitted the parent of one come to such high dignity as to be bishop palatine of durham he visited her afterwards and apparently found the dame in anything but a sweet temper what ails my sweet mother says he how fares she never worse quoth she and what ails thee then or troubles thee asks the good son hast thou not men and women and attendants sufficient yea quoth she and more than enough i say to one go and he runs to another come hither fellow and the varlet falls down on his knee and in short all things go on so abominably smooth that my heart is bursting for something to spite me and pick a quarrel withal and with that she fell a-weeping lady hester stanhope daughter of charles third earl stanhope granddaughter of the great earl of chatham and niece of william pitt was a woman of unbounded vanity arrogance and ill-temper a technical termagant she could not be for she was never married and that was perhaps a better fate which met general sir john moore at corunna than would have been his had he survived his disastrous retreat and returned to england for hester stanhope was his fiancee and if he had married her she could not have failed of keeping him in a lifelong subjection she was undoubtedly a clever woman witty and with some learning but all her doings were eccentric and fantastical beyond measure and tinctured strongly with hereditary madness for her father was something more than strange in his doings he too had gifts but they were overlaid by a singular species of mental alienation he was a furious republican and it is related of him that in accordance with those principles he caused his armorial bearings to be obliterated from his plate his carriages and from everything he possessed he halted only before the destruction of the iron gates of his house at chevening having removed even the magnificent tapestry given to his ancestor the great stanhope by the king of spain for the reason that it was to quote himself damned aristocratical he sold all his spanish plate weighing six hundredweight for the same whim and was used to sleep at once with twelve blankets over him and his bedroom window wide open two of a kind rarely agree together and so it is not surprising to find that lady hester stanhope felt her father's society insupportable she left home and went to reside with her grandmother the dowager lady chatham in somersetshire 
afterwards going to keep house for her uncle, William Pitt, in his retirement at Walmer. A year later he became again Prime Minister, and she, acting as one of his assistant private secretaries, moved for a time in the centre of political and social turmoil. But when Pitt died, broken-hearted at the news of Napoleon's victory of Austerlitz, his niece suddenly lost the prestige that had given her a factitious importance, and was fain to retire to the obscurity of Montague Square, where, for a time, she kept house for her two half-brothers, who both held commissions in the army. War breaking out, her occupation was gone, and after a short retirement to Bilth, she set out upon some extraordinary escapades in travelling, which finally landed her in Syria, where she lived until 1839 in a rambling house, half monastery, half palace, on the slopes of Mount Lebanon, in intriguing with or against the port, and the petty sheiks and emirs of the surrounding country. She was in receipt of a government pension of £1,200 a year for a very long period, and had considerable wealth besides, until her reckless extravagance dissipated all, and brought her not only to poverty, but in debt to the amount of forty thousand pounds. She kept up a considerable household in her seclusion upon Mount Lebanon, and retained a physician all to herself. Certainly she never paid him anything, but he seems to have taken it out in a kind of posthumous vilification, acting as the Boswell to her Johnson and publishing, some years after her death, three volumes of memoirs, correspondence, and conversations. He was a poor, invertebrate sort of a creature, this physician, who was content to stay beside a patient, or rather an employer, who not only paid him nothing, but consistently refused to follow his advice, and medicined herself with nostrums. It was sufficient for him to sit by her, to listen to her harangues, she made nothing of talking incessantly for twelve hours at one sitting, and to endure the plentiful abuse of doctors in general, and himself in particular, which was the staple of her conversation. To have been at length sent away with the curt intimation that he had better take himself off, seems to have aroused no resentment in this much enduring man. Certainly he mentions that he was, personally and professionally, subjected constantly to stinging insults, and that he suffered from her tyranny. But it would not appear that he ever grew restive under these repeated indignities. Lady Hester was, indeed, no mealy-mouthed blue-stocking. She had a rasping tongue, used on occasion language rather more free than welcome, and had the voice of a drill-sergeant. Added to these qualifications, she possessed biceps of unusual development, and used her muscles with effect on the miserable men and women Arabs, over whom she ruled with the rigour of a draco or a military martinet. She rather prided herself on the straight and forcible blows she could deliver, and lost no opportunity of demonstrating her prowess upon her trembling slaves. Her physician remarks that, from her manner towards people, it would have seemed that she was the only person in creation privileged to abuse and to command. 
others had nothing else to do but to obey and not to think she was haughty and overbearing impatient of control born to rule and more at her ease when she had a hundred persons to govern than when she had only ten never was any one so fond of wielding weapons and of boasting of her capability of using them upon a fit occasion as she was she kept a kind of armory in her bedroom and slept with a steel mace beside her a battle-axe and an assortment of daggers poniards and other murderous cutlery of that description lying within easy reach and if she did not actually use them upon the cowering wretches with whom she was surrounded was probably owing rather to their care in not giving offence to this terrible she-devil than to any forbearance on her part she stunned her entourage by her unusual combination of masculine and feminine powers of offence and defence she could storm and rage could nag and scold with the most proficient virago and fists or mace were ready when those more woman-like resources were exhausted she had the most excruciatingly ridiculous pride of birth and rank and was vain of her personal appearance long after any such beauty as she ever possessed had fled that beauty could only have been of complexion for if her resemblance to her uncle william pitt upon which she always insisted was more than a fancy her features must have been mean and insignificant pitt was the object of her whole-souled admiration and the pitt family she was a pitt on her mother's side she apparently considered to be above all the ordinary rules and restrictions of honour and probity which bind or are supposed to bind meaner mortals her physician tells us that she had on an occasion asked him if such a one ought not to act in a certain way undoubtedly said he a person of principle would not act otherwise principle she exclaimed what do you mean by principle i am a pit nothing was impossible after this but it seems likely that this like most of her sayings and doings was merely a pose meant to attract attention and make her notorious it was doubtless to the same end that she professed to dabble in magic and astrology and that she affected a belief in the proximate coming of the messiah awaiting his arrival she kept two arabian mares constantly saddled which had never been ridden and these mares had each a special attendant whose business was to keep everything ready for the celestial visitor who should ride thence in triumph to jerusalem with lady hester stanhope as a kind of lady guide and so to end this galaxy of shining lights in the whole art and mystery of shrewishness and termagancy many more there be but these are the most notorious of that unblessed company end of part one of chapter four